Well, at this time, before we hear the preaching of God's word, it's my privilege to read for you the word of God for this Sunday's message. Today's word comes from the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 5 to 13. And this is the reading of God's word. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious before, beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given, to, given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake but the one who endures to the end will be saved amen <laughs> we, we we have a rule where you always have to hug after between the preaching uh, between the reading of scripture and preaching no, I'm kidding. No, that, that's some, not something you're going to see every week. But one thing you have been hearing probably every week from every pastor is just what a pleasure and joy it is to see all your faces, uh, even if it is behind a mask, and I'm not sure if you're smiling or frowning or yawning. Uh, it is so good to see you guys and to be hearing your voices, as Pastor Jimmy said, in worship. And of course, I'm also so thankful for everyone who's joining us online through the live stream, thanks to the hard work of everyone working behind the scenes, all our technical teams. So thank you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark today. I know last week Pastor Harold spoke from a passage uh, leading up to the crucifixion, but we are going a little bit back today to a, a time in Mark chapter in Mark 13 where it's before the crucifixion, and it's one of the final instructions uh, that Jesus gives to his disciples before sending them off on their mission as he uh, sends them to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And, you know, I'm sure you notice this passage is a heavy one. It's not an easy one. Uh, there's, there's a lot of warnings. Jesus is basically predicting the hardships, the troubles that his disciples are going to be going through in the near future. He talks about uh, troubles that are just going to be going on around the world, uh, rumors of wars and wars, famines and earthquakes, disasters, false teachers. But he also specifically talks about the troubles that Jesus' followers are going to have specifically for following him. He talks about how they're going to face persecution, that people are going to hate them on account of him. And this is never an unusual occurrence. This was true for the disciples then, and it's always true in every generation for God's people, for those who follow Christ. And of course, Pastor Harold shared last week as well about the mockery of Jesus, how he was mocked all the way up to the cross, how he's mocked even today in academia and in pop culture, 
And Jesus takes it a step further, perhaps you can say, in this passage, where he says, not only was he mocked and hated, but all who follow him will be mocked and hated as well. And, you know, there's so much we can talk about in this passage. This is a a loaded passage with so much rich theology. We could talk for hours and hours uh, about this passage, which we're not going to do today, but if you'd like to do, you know, you could go find Pastor Jimmy after this service and talk to him. No, I'm kidding, of course. Every pastor would love to talk to you about any of your questions regarding the scriptures, of course. But because it's, there's so much in here, I do have to really narrow it down to what we're going to focus on today uh, in Mark 13. And I really want to focus on just two commands of Jesus within this passage. As we consider our witness in this world, as we consider our witness in a world that even hates you, for following Jesus. Just two commands, and those are, do not be alarmed and do not be anxious. Do not be alarmed and do not be anxious. Specifically in our passage, Jesus says, when you hear about wars and rumors of wars and just all sorts of troubling things going on around you, do not be alarmed. And he specifically says, uh, when you're uh, being brought on trial and being persecuted, do not be anxious about what you're going to say. Do not be alarmed, do not be anxious. And I think those are the specific places where he says that, but we can really apply that to this whole passage. That as we consider our witness, we have to have a witness that is not alarmed and not anxious. And John, 1 John 3.13 says it another way. He says, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised, don't be alarmed, don't be anxious, don't be afraid. You know, it's a, heavy, it's a heavy thing to think, and it's an easy thing to think. What, what, as you look around, as you hear the news, as you have conversations, it's easy to think, what, what's this world coming to? What's our country coming to? Uh, what, what is the next generation coming to? And Jesus is saying, none of this, none of this should be surprising. Right? Every generation has felt that way, especially if you are faithful to Jesus. And we have to remember, too, that Jesus, in and of himself, is offensive. If you've been Christian for a long time, you probably forgot the offensiveness of Jesus because you love Jesus and you know how much Jesus loves you. But if you really think about Jesus, there's something inherently offensive about him. Think about his cross. His cross tells you, you are a sinner, and you need a savior. The cross of Jesus tells you, you cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot save yourself. And that's pointing out a deficiency in all of us. That's offensive. Uh, when we call Jesus Lord, that too is offensive. Because though we may not say it out loud, we all want to be the lords of our own lives. We all want to be the lords of our own choices and of our own bodies and of our own truths and our own realities. But when Jesus is Lord, that means I'm not Lord, and I can't be Lord. And I find most interesting about the offensiveness of Jesus, it's not text. Uh, we see in verse 9, it says, speaking about the persecution the disciples will encounter, it says, they will deliver you over to councils, which most likely is a reference to the Sanhedrin, which is the high court of the Jewish leadership. And you will be beaten, not at the bar or on the streets in an alleyway, but you'll be beaten in the synagogues, places, places of worship, places of religion. 
And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness. In other words, it's not the bad people, the quote-unquote bad people that Jesus is talking about who are going to persecute and oppose and even try to hurt his disciples. But it's actually the good people, the quote-unquote good people, right? The, 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 lead, the religious leaders and the political leaders, people who are supposed to be good and righteous. And oftentimes they are good and righteous. And yet they're the ones who are opposing Jesus and his followers. And I think the reason is is pretty clear if you think about Jesus' teaching throughout his whole ministry. Because perhaps the most offensive thing about Jesus is not that he calls out uh, all the bad things, all the overtly wicked, evil, sinful things, and says, oh, those are bad. That's not the most offensive thing about him, because everyone can agree on those. But perhaps the most offensive thing about Jesus is he calls out your righteousness, namely your self-righteousness. Jesus actually says, you are not as good as you think you are. You are not as righteous as you think you are. You are not as moral as you think you are. And of course, that was a lot of Jesus' preaching throughout his ministry. That's why his biggest enemies were the Pharisees. And I know we use that word Pharisee kind of as a pejorative these days. But the Pharisees were, they had the most cultural capital in their day when it comes to what's right and what's good and what's moral. They were the religious elites, and and people didn't look down on them the way we kind of do now, now that we've read all these gospel stories. Jesus even rebukes your righteousness. And you know, I really do think that in 2021 and throughout all the generations, the people who oppose and hate you even for following Christ, oftentimes they're going to do so on moral grounds. They're not going to do it because they want to be evil and bad and they don't like that you're telling them not to be evil or bad. They, they're going to come at you and say, you are evil, you are bad for following Jesus and believing uh, the things of Jesus. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says exactly that. It says, they are, people are going to speak against you as evildoers on account of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter 2, 12 if you missed that. They're going to speak against you as evildoers and so I imagine you're thinking, thanks a lot, Pastor Daniel, Pastor Dinko. This is a, this is a heavy passage. You know, you're, you're telling me, well, I'm not telling you. Jesus is actually telling you. I just want to follow Jesus faithfully, and I'm going to be called an evildoer. I'm going to be called, perhaps in this day, a bigot, closed-minded, all sorts of things. And Jesus' point is, do not be alarmed. Do not be anxious. Do not be surprised at these things. He called it from the beginning. He always said this is the way it was going to be for his people. And I think perhaps for us in our context today, it's particularly surprising and shocking and, and discomforting because we've had a fair amount of privilege as Christians uh, just by, simply by living in the United States but I would say, you know, as the majority of people here are Asian American, especially in the Asian American context, I think it was the case where people were kind of Christian by default. It was, it was normal to be Christian. It was normal to hold to Christian beliefs. Uh, we know that in the immigrant church, which uh, many of us come from ultimately, you know, people who, would, who immigrated to America, sometimes they came to church even if they weren't religious at all, right? They would come to church and they would be part of a church for the sake of finding a community as immigrants. 
And it was kind of normal. It would be normal to just think that everyone I know pretty much is Christian. If you're anything like me, uh, growing up when I was a teenager, if you're around my age, I I did feel that way. I did feel like pretty much everyone I knew, like even people I didn't know well, like just acquaintances and classmates, so many of them came from Christian backgrounds. Uh, And then I thought about it a little bit further, and I realized, okay, so everyone kind of defaulted to Christianity, but there was still a sense in which Christianity was weird. It, it, it was normal to default to Christianity, but it was a little bit weird to be devout in Christianity. But even still, it was, it was kind of the norm. It was kind of a, a shared common ground amongst a lot of different people. And that was a privilege. That was not, Jesus tells us, that's not the norm. That is not what we should always expect. One author recently asked a group of Christian students at Cornell University, uh, what's the first thing your non-Christian classmates associate with Christianity? You know, in other words, he's kind of trying to get a pulse of what, what the current opinion of Christianity is amongst college students. And the number one answer in terms of the first thing people associate with Christianity amongst their classmates was Westboro Baptist Church, which is an unfortunate association. If you're familiar with that church, very controversial church. In my opinion, not a good witness of Jesus Christ at all. Uh, hateful, bigoted, you can even say. Um, doing things that are not, a, not really reflective of the love of Christ. And it's an unfortunate thing, but once again, not shouldn't be surprising that the world, when they think of you as a Christian, they might think Westboro Baptist Church, even though you are so different from Westboro Baptist Church. Jesus is saying, do not be alarmed, anxious, or surprised. Because this is what he's been calling all along. This is what he said it would be like all along. Uh, Next, Starting next Sunday, throughout the month of August, we actually, I hope you know this, we have a missions month. And every week we're going to have different people, different missionaries, different people sharing uh, on Sundays as well as throughout the week about what it's like to be a missionary uh, in, in different fields across the world. And ask any of these missionaries, what they think about Mark 13 and what Jesus is saying. And they'll tell you, this is the norm. Right? This is the norm. In, in other parts of the world, it has always been like this. Where be it uh, because of atheism or other religions or because of the government even, the people will hate you and oppose you for following Christ. And they'll say, this is, this is our every day. This is how it's always been for us and for the people we love on. And Jesus reminds us, don't be alarmed, don't be anxious, don't be surprised. You know, one thing that happens when we let ourselves get too alarmed and anxious about these things is it becomes a lot easier to also get angry, right? Alarmed, anxious, afraid, angry, those are all very, it's a very common succession of emotions. You don't have to be a psychologist to know that, uh, when you're alarmed and when you're fearful, it, it, it brings out the flight or fight response in us. Right? I recently read that in an article. And we've, we've probably been seeing it all around us these days where uh, more incidences of violence, even in airplanes, uh, a big increase in violence on airplanes. And there's a sense in which everyone's on edge Everyone is, is, is kind of defaulting to the fight or flight mode, right? I remember when uh, 
uh, anti-Asian racism was at its peak. Man, I don't, you probably feel the same too if you're Asian. I would, I would go to like Target or something. I would go shopping and in the parking lot, I'm always like ready to defend myself. I don't know how I would, but just trying to be ready, looking over my shoulder. That's the fight or flight response. And what Jesus is telling us today through Mark 13 is that is not the go-to mode of operation for his, for his people. Despite the fact that there are people who will oppose you and hate you on account of following him. That we are not to be on edge constantly. We are not to constantly be afraid and anxious. In a world that constantly is throwing things at us to tell us to be more alarmed, to tell us to be more anxious, to tell us to be more afraid and even angry. I like how one pastor puts it, how one pastor puts it, that the church can offer a non-anxious presence here in this world. That exactly is what Jesus is saying. It doesn't mean that the church needs to be detached and uncaring, but it means even as we care so much about everything that's going on around us, that we can do it with a peace that surpasses understanding, that we can do it with, without the angst that the world keeps preaching to us. You know, there's an example of that sort of angst and anger coming from God's people uh, in Luke chapter 9. I just want to set up a little bit where in Luke chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, they're going through, uh, they're, they're approaching a Samaritan village, but that village rejects Jesus and says, don't come here. Don't, we don't want you here. And I think the disciples, the, the response of James and John is very telling in Luke chapter 9, verses 54 to 55, after the Samaritan village rejects Jesus, it says this, his disciples, James and John, saw it, and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I hope you know that's not a normal response, even if, you reject, if someone rejects Jesus. That's not normal. I hope you know this. If you're not a Christian, please know that's not normal. And you know how you know that's not normal? is because Jesus straight up said, he turned and rebuked them right after they said that. But why did James and John do this? Why did they say this? Should we destroy them for you, Jesus? We'll destroy them if you want. We can do that. that we, we, have, we can't avoid that there, there was racial prejudices and tensions because it was a Samaritan village and Samaritans and Jews uh, had, had tension and, and had a low view of each other. But I think it's telling that James and John, they take it upon themselves, right? They say, we'll do it. We'll, we will make the fire come down. We will destroy that Samaritan village for rejecting you, Jesus. When in fact, they had known that the whole, that Jesus specifically instructed his disciples, when they reject you because of me, all you got to do is wipe the dust off your sandals. That's all you got to do. And what that meant was, as the dust remains on the people who rejected Jesus, so does remain the judgment on them. That will come from God. From, from God, not from James and John, but from God. And James and John, they, they somehow turn this and they make it about themselves. Where Because they're taking this so personally, they say, you know what, we'll personally meet out the destruction and the punishment as well. And they get rebuked. They get rebuked. I think it's interesting in our passage from Mark 13, there's a part where Jesus tells his disciples, 
don't be anxious beforehand what you're going to say when they bring you on trial and when they persecute you because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You guys all remember that part. I'm sure you remember that from our passage. I'm sure you've heard it before too. And you know, at least for me, whenever I heard that passage, I always just thought thought of it very spiritually, like very, uh, you know, it's just almost mystical even. Like, yeah, it's the Spirit just giving the words to say and it's, you know, we call that extemporaneous. And there is, of course, that is true. It is a spiritual reality. But I think it's also telling and, inter- and important to note that this is also a heart issue. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have had to do some kind of public speaking at some point in your life uh, where, you know, maybe you have to say something at a wedding, a speech. Maybe, you have to, maybe it's, it's specifically... Christian, it's, you, you have to say something about Christianity to someone else. You're, you're getting ready to evangelize to somebody. And to th- if you think about those instances, what do you usually do? What do you do? You rehearse, right? You rehearse like crazy. I still remember the first time I gave a sermon. I, I probably rehearsed that thing like 20 times. And, and, you know, even if it's something short, like you just have to say like three sentences. Sometimes we just rehearse that so much that we want to get it just right. We don't, we don't want to say anything wrong. But you have to ask yourself, what's our motivation for that? What does it take to be able to say, I'm not going to prepare beforehand what I'm going to say? You know what it takes? It takes a lot of self-forgetfulness, right? It takes a lot of taking myself out of the equation. Now, please don't over, over-interpret this passage. It doesn't mean that anytime you, you're going to talk about Jesus, don't ever prepare, right? It's not saying there's something wrong with preparation. But I think it addresses the heart of even as you prepare, even as you rehearse, and as you think about what you want to say, because people are going to ask you about Jesus, to be able to say, I'm going to take myself out of the equation. I'm going to take my reputation, my name, what people think of me out of the equation. And you do that, that's a great way to be less anxious, less alarmed. As we, as we think of, I, I'm going to keep speaking the Holy Spirit's words, not my words. I'm going to represent Jesus, not myself, plus Jesus. And as, and as we get caught up in the culture wars and political disagreements and, and all sorts of just incendiary dialogue, And as we think about how that intersects with our faith, I do want to suggest to you, if you find yourself getting overly anxious and overly alarmed, overly angry in those moments, perhaps we all do need to take a step back and say, have I put myself in this equation way too much? Am I in the forefront? Is that why I'm so angry and anxious and afraid? Because I've put myself in the forefront, because I've made it about myself more than it is about Jesus. It's more for my name than his. I'm not saying it's always the case. I think there's plenty of room for righteous anger, righteous alarm. But when you find yourself feeling those ways, I do want to ask you to take a step back and consider, maybe I've made this more about myself. Nevertheless, despite these heavy, heavy warnings, Jesus does offer us comfort in the midst of these warnings. In verse 10 of our text, it says this, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel must first be proclaimed. I know that sounds like a command, but it is a comfort as well. Because 
Jesus is saying, despite all the opposition and all the hate, despite the fact that people are going to try to beat you and, and question you and put you on trial, the gospel will keep being proclaimed. The, the gospel will keep going forth. It's going to still happen, and Jesus is going to use you to do it. And the second comfort comes in verse 13. Though he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Please note, that doesn't mean that uh, the reward for your endurance is salvation. Uh, It's rather the other way around, that endurance is the result of your salvation. I think the whole Bible tells us that, uh, that if you endure, it shows that you are saved. And of course, we know Jesus ta- the Bible tells us that Jesus will carry all of his people on to completion. It's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. And even when you're hated with Jesus, the beauty is you're with Jesus. Even if you're hated with him, you're with him. That's the, that's the comfort. Like Jesus promised us in the Great Commission, he said, Surely I will be with you all always till the end of the age, even in the midst of persecution and opposition. And so keep enduring, keep enduring. And enduring doesn't mean uh, just grinning and bearing it, but enduring means shining as lights, even in the midst of a world that hates us, even in the midst of a world that looks down on you, that doesn't speak highly of you, precisely because you're Christian. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly how you're going to bear witness. That's exactly how you're going to be a witness. How will you conduct yourself when you're not so liked and respected and treated well because of your faith. And enduring and shining as lights does also mean that we need to do better at not adding to the offense of the gospel. We established that Jesus is inherently offensive because he is Savior, because he is Lord, because he calls out even our righteousness. He tells us we're not as good as we think we are. But please let us not add to that offense Enduring and shining as lights means we don't add to the offense of the gospel. That we don't add to the offense of the gospel by adding our own agendas, by adding our own abuses, by adding our own self-centered anger and alarm. Well, we do need to do better. We do need to do better and not adding to that offense. Whether we're talking about us as individual Christians or even us as the body of Christ, as the community of believers, the institution of the church, We do need to do better. We do need to keep holding on to that Reformation slogan, that motto, Semper Reformanda. That's Latin. And anytime you use Latin, it makes you look smarter. But that's not why we do it. It's because it's an important message. Semper Reformanda means always reforming. Always reforming. That as God's people, as we study the scriptures more and more, as we seek to be faithful to the scriptures more and more, that it means we're always reforming as individual Christians and as the church. That we're always growing, that we're always getting better. That we're always seeking to right our own wrongs as well as we stay true to the scriptures. And you know, even as we do better, I do need to tell you, It's not going to make the news. As we do always reform, as we seek to be always reforming, it's not going to make the headlines. It's not going to be in the news. You know, Westboro Baptist Church, 
that church will always make the news. Scandals and abuses, those will always make the news. And as, as, as heartbreaking and tragic and as dishonoring to the name of Jesus as scandals and abuses in the church are, especially so, tra- so heartbreaking for the victims of these abuses, we do need to know that needs to happen. Those things do need to come out on the news. They need to be exposed. Because as terrible as it is, that is much better than if those sorts of things remain hidden. And, and if they just continue. Those things do need to come out in the headlines. But let me tell you this. When God's people live faithfully, when they honor his name, that's not going to make the headlines. When lives are transformed little by little every day, when people are loved on and served in everyday ways, in ordinary ways, when, when God's people seek the benefit of their earthly cities, as they seek to bless the people around them as good citizens, as they seek to love their neighbor as themselves, as they seek to love one another even within the church, let me tell you, that's probably not going to make the headlines. But what will happen, Jesus tells us, is the gospel will continue to be proclaimed. People will continue to come to Christ. People will come, continue to come to know his saving love. And perhaps for us, it's just time to get more used to the fact that it's not going to make headlines. That in fact, it's going to be the opposite. That maybe you'll have to be a little more uncomfortable. Maybe you'll have to be, get used to facing some opposition. Maybe you'll have to get used to facing some disdain, some disrespect. People looking down on you, people speaking bad about you. People thinking you're weird or worse. You have to start getting used to that. And Jesus tells us in our passage, it can even get as bad as family turning on one another on account of him. He says, brother will go against brother, family. Parents will go against children and vice versa. He says, even families might start opposing each other because of Christ's name. I've shared about him with you in the past, but I can't help thinking about him now. Uh, there's a brother named Nabil Qureshi, who actually did pass away a few years ago. Uh, but Nabil Qureshi, he's, he's remarkable because he wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And he tells about how he was a devout Muslim, coming from a devout Muslim family, uh, a very gentle, loving, kind, good family. And when he became a Christian, it destroyed his family. They felt betrayed. They felt like he, he, his family said, you're basically killing us by becoming a Christian. And Nabil Qureshi, you know, he, he's lamenting so much because he's come to this faith where he, he knows that this is the truth. He knows that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and he can't let go of that. But he also knows that holding on to that reality, holding on to the gospel, means that it's, his family will be destroyed, and, and there will be this rift created, and they'll be heartbroken. And he's in a moment of lament, and he actually writes this. He, he writes about what he was feeling, and he says, He likens his situation to being crucified with Jesus, rightfully so. And he says, would it be worth it to pick up my cross and be crucified next to Jesus? If he is not God, then no. Lose everything I love to worship a false God a million times over? No. But if he is God, then yes. Being forever bonded to my Lord by suffering alongside him, a million times over, yes. 
I think it's natural to think, Jesus, how can I not be alarmed? How can I not be anxious? How can I not be afraid when so much that is alarming and anxiety-making is going on around me? How can, I, how can I be okay with this? That people are going to hate me? That people are going to oppose me? Even my, that can even happen in my family? We all stand with Nabil Qureshi who says, if Jesus is God who died for me on a cross, then a million times over it's worth it. If that's true, if Jesus is God who went to the cross for me, then a million times over it's worth it. Because before we ever ever faced any persecution, any hate, any jeering, any unkind word for the things we believe in. Before that ever happened, we have to always remember Jesus went to the cross first. Jesus was mocked first. Jesus received our reputation, the reputation of a sinner on that cross, the reputation of a criminal who deserves punishment that he didn't deserve. He received that on the cross. He would do that first. But he would also rise again first. And when we know this Lord who saved us, not because we're faithful, but because he's faithful. When we know this Lord who died for us, not because we're good, but because he's good. When we're looking at him and fixated on him, we can actually keep shining his lights, even in the midst of opposition. We can actually be not anxious and not alarmed, certainly not angry even in the midst of a world that hates us. Because if they do hate you, you can always know they hated our Lord first. If they mock you, you know they mocked our Lord first. And as you keep proclaiming the gospel and enduring and shining his lights, you can always remember that promise of Jesus that he said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And no matter what opposition you face, the gospel will continue to be proclaimed. Jesus will continue to be made known. He will make himself known. And people will be saved. Please pray with me. Lord, I'll be the first to confess that I like the idea of people liking me and nobody disliking me, of being respected and well thought of. But Lord, we thank you for a sobering reminder from Mark 13 that reminds us that that's just not the reality, the norm for us as followers of Jesus. That there will be an offensiveness about us. That there will be an offensiveness about the gospel. Oh, Lord, I do pray that for us as Christ Central and really as the universal church, that we ask that you would help us not to add to the offense of the gospel, that you would help us not to add our own agendas, our own abuses, our own anger and alarm, because we're making it about our own names. Lord, keep us fixated on the one who went to the cross first. Keep us fixated on the one who rose again, the one who took our place, the one who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Keep us fixated on him and keep us shining as lights. Keep us enduring for the sake of Christ's name and Christ's name alone. Oh Lord, how we need your protection, how we need the Holy Spirit's words and the Holy Spirit's comfort in the midst of a chaotic world. Thank you, Lord, that, that we have that, that we have that promise. 
that truly you are with us always. Would that reality continue to push us forward in our mission in representing you in loving you and loving our neighbor. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.